Uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. The book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find it in your pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you on page 983. Page 983. And as the video just showed, we're, we're in a series that we've entitled Preeminent. A study uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people, a church meeting in the city of Colossae, which is in modern day uh, Turkey. And uh, we've been doing so under this heading of preeminent, learning uh, that uh, we serve a God and a King who is filled with uh, majesty and glory, and his name is Jesus Christ. And as we've been learning about what makes Jesus magnificent and glorious, what makes him preeminent, is in the first part of this letter we learn that Christ created all things and claims all things and controls all things to the glory of his name. And last week we learned that another reason why he's preeminent is because he has reconciled all things to himself, including you and I, by the death and burial of his son Jesus Christ, who was then raised from the dead. But as we approach this week, we come to the question, how does this preeminence affect me? What am I doing in light of all that I've learned about Jesus and the central role he plays in my salvation and redemption? Our text this morning is going to tell us exactly how. Now, study after study that pastors get uh, sent to them tell us that people would be more engaged in their faith if they knew where they were going and how they ought to engage with that faith in every part of their lives. Paul's going to say that that endeavor isn't easy. And so if you come looking for easy answers, how to walk the life of faith, it isn't easy. It's difficult. Paul's going to use words like suffering and, and striving and anguishing. But when we seek God and pursue him and we allow our faith to fire on all cylinders, Paul says that that difficult and sometimes weary walk will be the greatest thing that you and I could ever be a part of. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Grab that insert in the bulletin to follow along. And let's stand as we read this great text before us and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Here's what it says. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father God, we come before you and we ask your blessing on the reading and, and preaching and hearing of your word this morning. Father, I pray that uh, these truths of, of the ministry you've called us to is the, is the same ministry that you called the Apostle Paul and so many others to, the same ministry that you've called Corey and, and Michelle, is the same ministry you've called each and every one in this place to. 
But Lord, that ministry isn't easy. It's going to mean sacrifice and suffering. It's going to mean toiling and and agony at times. But Lord, we are promised at the end of this text that we can do it because it is your energy that powerfully works within us. And so Lord, I pray we'll tap into that energy this morning and we'll leave so much different than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our text this morning, Paul is beginning to transition from his introduction of this letter and his defense of Jesus Christ as the preeminent one to the Colossian situation in particular that needs to be addressed. And he does so by beginning to share a little bit about his uh, current situation and, and circumstances. And in verses 24 through 29, we get a glimpse into the life and times of the Apostle Paul and into his ministry. And as we look at it, we see that his life is in fact a life worth imitating. Within this text, he not only calls each of us to our God-given roles as followers of Jesus Christ, but he gives us a step-by-step instructional manual so that we may be successful in doing so. This past Christmas, my son Joshua, who's nine years of age, who loves Legos, was given by a family member the largest Lego set that he's ever had an opportunity to put together. Well over 700 pieces uh, of little Legos that would form a pretty impressive house with lights and, and all kinds of things. I believe there was a grill in it, even a drumstick that you put on the grill. It had all the bells and whistles. As I looked at the instructional manual, there were more than 200 distinct steps to putting this Lego set together. And I don't know at what steps he would get frustrated, but there were about a dozen different times where he would turn the page and his hands would go up and he'd say, I'm done. There's no way I can do this. But he stuck with it, with his parents' encouragement, and he put the the whole house together, even the little drumstick on the grill. Now, how can a nine-year-old kid take 700 pieces of little Legos, all different shapes and sizes, and form a pretty impressive house as a completed project? What enables him to do that? Well, the creators of the Lego set helped out, knowing that young kids would never probably be able to do this on their own. They got smart, and with the Legos came that 200-page instructional manual. You see, what that instructional manual did was showed step by step uh, another individual putting the pieces together, showing how the pieces were to fit so that everything would be in the proper spot. Our God in heaven is our creator, and he's given us an instructional manual. He's given us an instructional manual, and he's given us somebody who's gone before us to put it all together so we can look at That example this morning, if you will, that faith Lego uh, assembler is the Apostle Paul. You see, when we look at God's instructional manual, the Bible, and we try to understand how our lives are to be put together, the Apostle Paul shows us what a life and what a ministry dedicated to God looks like. And for many of us, we throw our hands up and say, I don't know my place in this world. I don't know my role in the church. I don't know what God has put me on this earth to do or or to accomplish. And Paul tells us, follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in this passage this morning, we are given that step-by-step instructional manual. 
But here's the thing. It's not good enough for us just to know the steps. For Joshua, it wasn't just good enough for him to to see the completed pictures on the pages. He had to do the hard work of looking up and looking for those particular pieces in all the pile of 700. He needed to look and understand where they exactly went, and he had to have the perseverance and the endurance to take it, even though there were endless dead ends and struggles along the way. You see, your faith walk is no different. We cannot just simply say, well, Paul got it right, and that's great. Look at, look at that great structure Paul has built. Man, he, he's a master builder. No, for us to be a part of it, we have to look at Paul's example, and then we need to do the hard work of enduring. And, and even at times where it seems like we've come to a dead end, we need to roll up our sw- sleeves, we need to uh, get a little sweaty in the work of faith so that we can accomplish the work. Because here's the thing, when we accomplish what God has placed us on earth to do, there is no better place to be. You should have seen the joy of my son when he came and and showed his mom the finished product. He says, it's done. It's completed. To which then we said, well, what are you going to do now? He says, well, the creator says I can make another house. So I'm going to tear it all apart and I'm going to do it again. And that's what God seemingly is calling to us each and every day. Once one project is done, uh, to begin working on another project, always toiling for the faith. Well, how do we do that this morning? Paul gives us this example, and he gives it under three headings this morning. Number one, if we want to know our role and we want to follow the instructional manual for our lives, then we, like Paul, must first of all commit ourselves to God's calling. We must commit ourselves to God's calling. Notice in verses 24 and 25, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Paul understood his role, and in verse 25, notice that his calling isn't connected to some program. It isn't connected to some particular ministry. It isn't just because he got an answer uh, from some spiritual gift assessment as helpful as those things can be. Notice that the thing we need to understand about our calling, first and foremost, it begins and ends with God. I've had many people come to me and ask, "What, what do you think, Pastor, is my calling in life? What do you think God has brought me here on earth to do? And many times with that question comes uh, an expectation that I'm going to tell them that their place in God's will and plans is a dot. you got to be right here. And we put the cart before the horse many times when, when we do that. You see, your calling begins with an acknowledgement first, as Paul declares, that God is in charge and that we have a willingness to say to the Lord, wherever you lead, I will follow. You've already heard this morning by Corey's own words, and that's a dangerous prayer. To say to the Lord, I'll go where you want me to go, usually doesn't always mean uh, just to stay where you're at. Usually it means you're going to go to a place that, uh, whether it's across the street or across the world, that's going to pull you out of your comfort zone. But this is what Paul prays. How do we know that? Notice in the text in verse 25, he uses the word. He says, I have become a minister. Now that sounds pretty good. 
That, that sounds like something that would look good on a business card. I, I'm Paul. I'm a minister of God. Uh, that looks good on a nameplate, doesn't it? But we need to understand that as we dig a little deeper, the word that Paul uses is the Greek word diakonos. It literally means servant or slave. Uh, This word in the New Testament most frequently was used to describe one whose activity conveyed the basic meaning of a performer of menial and mundane activities or tasks. A diakonos was one who waited on tables, who cleaned a house, who did household chores like laundry and picking up after others. It spoke of insignificance in many ways. It spoke of someone who was maybe not as well-known or spectacular. Such service would involve dependence and submission. It would mean that you would have constraints on your time and your freedom. The problem was, is in Colossae, they followed a lot of the Greeks' cultures, and diakonos was a degrading and dishonorable position. You see, the Colossians had teachers in their day that said that the highest calling for any man or woman was to distinguish themselves by showing their intellect and their personality, to show themselves superior. In essence, the goal of each of their lives was to make themselves preeminent over all others in all settings. Paul says, I have made myself a servant and I am called to follow Jesus Christ and to do whatever he says, no matter how menial I think the work may be. But why would he do such a thing? Why would Paul, spectacular Paul, great apostle Paul, why would he lower himself to such a menial position and role of that of a servant? Notice he came to recognize what we must come to recognize, and that is our calling is from God. Our calling is from God. Paul says that he is a servant or a minister, notice in the text in verse 25, based on the stewardship given by God to Paul. Paul was a servant. Did he deserve to be a servant? No. But like Paul, we have been graced by God with an opportunity to serve our heavenly master. Now, how are we going to do it? That word stewardship tells us that our job is to manage the kingdom work that God has for us. Now notice that this calling was not given to everyone generally. Meaning God said to everybody, you know, maybe be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I just signed up. I know I wasn't asked to do it. Notice it was given to Paul. It was given to me, he says, individually. To minister, notice, on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ to a unique group of people, the Colossian church. Now, God has called each and every one of us. If you're a child of God this morning, God has called you not only into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, but in that relationship is an expectation that God has that you and I will serve as managers with the gifts that God has given to the world that is around us. But notice Paul says that, that as we serve God, it isn't just from God, that, that, that our job doesn't originate just from him, but notice that our calling is for God as well. You see, Paul's going to talk as a prominent man, a man who's taken upon himself a great deal of suffering. He's taken on anguish. 
He's taken on the menial job of being a servant. But what would make this prominent man do such a thing? What would make us, as important people in our lives, to give up our own plans, our own desires, our own uh, wants and expectations and dreams to follow a God we've never seen and follow and live by a book that was written a couple thousand years ago. What would possess us to do such a thing, to lay down ourselves for the sake of this God whom we say we serve? The answer is in verses 21 through 23. Remember, last week we learned we are lost and we're in need of salvation. And apart from someone coming on our behalf who who could fight the fight, who could win the battle that we were losing, we were heading to hell without hope. But in verses 21 through 23, a strong man appears. It is Jesus Christ. He's the preeminent one. And he comes and and he seeks and saves that which was lost. And he does so through the death of his flesh and blood on the cross of Calvary. That we who were without hope now could have hope in the gospel. That we could have a relationship with our Father in heaven. Because we've been, as the text says, reconciled uh, from our sin and our death and our trespasses and us doing evil deeds, being hostile in our minds, verse 21, to now a relationship that you and I now are presented holy and blameless before our Father in heaven, above reproach before him. And if that is what Christ has done, then shouldn't we do something in response? This uh, Sunday morning, this morning, uh, we were driving to church and and there was a song that was speaking about the grace of God. And, And the end, it said, all I need to say is thank you. And I leaned over to Amanda and I said, that's not what the Bible says. I says, yes, thank you is only part of it. But go on, singer, go on, songwriter. Our response is to say thank you, and our response is to say, now what can I do for you? How can I live a life of gratitude for you? Lord, you left your place of glory to make yourself poor on my behalf. Now, in light of what you've done for me, I, yes, should say thank you, but I should now leave my places of glory and go to the places of poverty for the sake of his glory. We should leave that which we have, as Paul did, and suffer on his sake. To live and to serve and to do all things, as Paul says later in this passage, for the glory of God, the preeminent one. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, reminds us, as Paul did to the Roman people, that we all have different gifts. And as we have these different gifts, God's called us, while we experience the same salvation, we've been now uh, sent out to do different things. You've heard that this morning. You've heard two women from two different places being used to reach other women in two different ways, in two different areas. We all have different gifts. We all have been given and administered a grace, a same grace, 
but to be operated, to be used in different ways. And so that then leads to some roadblocks that I want us to be careful with because we use our gifts and, and what can happen is, is the devil can begin to tell us that our ministry or, or what we're doing isn't effective. It, he can begin to say what we're doing is wrong. And, and there are three things that I want to remind us of when in regards to our gifts. Number one, Paul reminds us that because our ministry and our calling comes from God and is for God, roadblock number one, be careful not to covet other ministries. Be careful not to covet someone else's ministry. Paul's endured a lot in his service to God. Uh, Not only here, but anywhere else. You cannot find in all of the scriptures these words Paul says. It sure would be nice to change with someone. I sure would like to change my job description. I'm tired of making known the mystery of, the, of God to the Gentiles. But far too often this happens to many of us. We don't like where God has us. We don't like the places that God has called us to. And we look at what God is doing in someone else's life and in someone else's ministry. And we say, oh, I want that. I, I want to be a part of that ministry. They're, they're experiencing some blessing. They're experiencing some, some growth. I, I want to be a part of that. And we begin to covet what God's doing in someone else's life and not in our own. This is a great sin for us as pastors. Because of the internet, because of social media, we can see what other churches are doing, what other pastors are, are a part of. And, and for many pastors... We begin to lust after those opportunities instead of being content with what God has called us to and the people to whom God has called you to. Maybe you don't struggle with this, but, but I have. I've struggled with it for some time. Some 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to get together uh, for lunch with a, a mentor of mine who was very well known in the evangelical movement. And he says, I want to get you together with another uh, pastor and uh, he's from out of town. He's going to be visiting and having some meetings. And I'd like you guys to meet. And we had lunch together. And it was a great time. And at the end of the, the meal, my mentor said, I am sitting with two of the up-and-coming great pastors of the United States. And I felt pretty good because that guy really was on the cusp of some great things. And, and I walked away really just, just feeling good about myself. And then the next 10 years happened where the other guy in the church was pastoring a church of 10,000. He was one of the most tweeted individuals. He was followed by more Christians than anywhere. And I sat there and said, whoa, whoa, uh, why am I not seeing that? Why can't I have some of that? Why do I find myself in a bivocational role in a smaller church, uh, not having the impact that that guy's having? I'm just being real with you this morning. And what I began to recognize with the help of my wife and others is that that's not mine to covet. You see, when we covet ministry, it's no different than a married individual coveting another person's spouse. It's not for you to have. And what I began to understand was, while my eyes were focused in on another ministry in another place, my eyes weren't where God wanted me to have them, and that is on the ministry he's called me to be a part of. And what I began to do is look with disdain on the, one whom, the ones that God has called me to serve instead of looking with delight. Don't covet 
other people's ministries. If, they're, if it's from God and it's for God, then it's not about you and me. It's not about our prestige. It's not about numbers. It's not about uh, the influence that we have. God wants us to serve him. Notice number two. We can't complain about our ministry. We can't complain about our ministry. Examine the text before you. Notice all the times Paul says how much he hates his apostolic ministry. How much he despises being in prison. How he continually grates upon him to teach the people the true gospel of Jesus Christ only for those people to buy into crackpot heresies. He hates all the pain, all the suffering, and all that comes with the calling that God has given, right? It's in your text. It's right there. You can see it. No, notice there's none of that. While the troubles were mounting for Paul, he's in prison. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's been persecuted. He has suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. Notice the only word that Paul uses to describe his vantage point with regard to his ministry is the following. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul saw it as an honor to suffer a little bit for the one who suffered far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Far too many of us find ourselves not experiencing God's real calling in our lives because we're too busy arguing with God, complaining about the places and the people that God has called us to be around. And in essence saying to God, you messed up on this one, God. You should have called me to a different place with with a far easier ministry. But Paul learned that a servant's job isn't to create his own job description. That's the job of the master. And some of us are complaining right now, and we have good reason. Your calling isn't fun. Your calling isn't what everybody else is doing. Your calling is to suffer, and it's been painful Your calling is more about endurance than it is enjoyment. And the master has saw fit to do that. In the book of Romans, it tells us, should the potter or should the clay tell the potter what he should make? No, it's the potter's job to shape and to mold that clay into what he wants it to be. That means then that we have to be careful not to create our own ministry. Maybe you're not coveting or complaining. But maybe the reason why you're not coveting or complaining is because you've created your own ministry. And what I mean by that is you have got this idea that you define what the Christian life looks like. And you say, the Christian life is me showing up to church on Sunday, maybe be involved in a small group, and and then I can do whatever else I want. I've put in my time. Now I have, if you will, time of leave to go and do whatever I want to do. And so we fill our lives with all these things and say, well, hey, I'm living the good Christian life because I'm going to church, I'm doing my duty, and then I can do whatever else I want. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says that my calling and and, and your calling and, and our calling is to fill ourselves in all ways with the things of the Lord. To do all that we do, whether we eat or drink, to do all things to the glory of the Lord. But for many of us, we have filled our lives with things that are good, but where God is absent. We fill our schedules so that we don't have to be obedient to God. So when, 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 when the church calls and says, we sure could use uh, someone to help in the children's ministry, I would love to do that. 
but I'm busy. The church says, hey, uh, we want to do this special project. We want to serve the Lord, and, and it's going to take some money. I would love to, but, but we're a little overextended. You see, we create our own ministry. We put the name ministry on it, and really what it is is a bunch of man-made activities that have temporal significance but mean nothing in the eternal test of things. Remember, this calling is not yours. It's for God. It's from God. You were bought with a price, and so now you and I are called to honor God with our body and our lives. But what does that look like? What does that look like? What, what does that calling mean for each and every one of us? Notice Paul addresses it in the latter part of the text. He says that we're called there, that this type of life means that we're going to exercise, write this down, we're going to exercise a ministry mindset every day. How do you know if you're living out God's calling? How do you know if you are fulfilling the purpose that God has for you? I'll ask these three questions this morning. Number one, does my every day, and the best way to do this is to test this last week. So ask this question. Did my week last week seek, first of all, to free the sinner? Did it seek to free the sinner? Notice in in verse 23, Paul says, that this hope of the gospel that the Colossians have heard is what Paul has dedicated himself to proclaim not only to the Colossian church, but to all of the world, both Greeks and Jews, all sorts of people that he has called to tell of the gospel. In verse 6 of chapter 1, we see that Paul, I'm sorry, that the Colossians themselves were busy proclaiming the gospel, that it was bearing fruit all over the world. And so that then asks the question, when was the last time that you fulfilled this aspect of your calling? As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are now compelled by the grace that has saved you to tell others about it. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul does two things that should be a part of every one of our lives. Number one, in Colossians 4, he says that he is going to pray for opportunities. And so each and every morning we got to get up and we need to say, Lord, you have saved me. I could be on my way to hell and I'm no longer lost and dead in my sin. Now I have a right relationship with you, full of the hope of the gospel for the glory of God. I am going to pray now that you would give me opportunities to bring about change in the life of others just as you brought change through someone else in my life. It begins by praying. Praying for that guy that sits next to you at work. Praying for that kid that sits on the bus next to you on the way to school. Praying for that uh, mom uh, that's next door raising kids like you are. Praying for that family member. Lord, give me opportunities and watch out because God will. But notice, he doesn't just say, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to pray. In Colossians chapter 4, he says, and then pray that I will speak boldly as I teach the truth of Christ. And so it's not good enough for us just to pray for opportunities, but we need to look for those opportunities. When those opportunities come, we need to open our mouths and we need to say something. 
There's a phrase that, that uh, is, is used, and it sounds really biblical, and, and it's not. It's not from the Bible, but it's from St. Francis of Assisi. And he says, uh, share the gospel with all you can, and, and if you have to, use words. And, and I like it. Uh, yeah, our life should be an example. But I'll tell you something. No one is ever going to be saved by just looking at you. People are saved, whether we like it or not, people are saved by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so wherever we go, whatever we do, yes, our lives must look like our Christ in heaven, but it also needs to tell of the work that Christ has done because this is not reformation we're talking about. We're talking about a rebirth that can only happen through the proclamation of the word of God. Now notice what will happen when this takes place. Paul says in Colossians that this will therefore bear fruit, not only in our lives, but throughout the world. And we hear that. Aren't you glad we're a part of a church that partners with ministries outside of ourselves so that we can hear that we're not the only one on the block doing the ministry? That there are other faithful people throughout the world who are reaching a lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and doing it in such a way that should be firing us up to do the same. Notice number two. In this last week, have you sought to fortify the saints? Notice in verse 24, he says, I've done all this for the sake of his body, That is the church. Paul says that his calling is for the benefit of another group of people. That is the church. Notice your calling is not in isolation for others, but it's done in conjunction with others. So I have a calling of being a preacher, proclaiming and teaching the word of God. I can't do that without you, right? It would seem odd for me to come in here, and and I used to do this when I first started preaching because I was nervous about preaching. I would come in on Saturday nights, and I would come in here, and I would preach to an empty group of people. There was nobody here. And I'd preach my heart out, and it it was good, but nothing was ever accomplished. Well, one time I was preaching late one Saturday night here and preaching my heart out. I'm being a little bit funny and became a little televangelist in the process. And little did I know Keith Henderson, our janitor, had made his way into the sanctuary without me knowing. And quiet Keith raised his hand. He says, when are you doing the altar call? I'm ready to come forward, Pastor. (laughs) Scared the daylights out of me. That's what happens when you play with preaching. God will get you back. But here's the thing. What good is it for me to be a preacher if there's no one to listen? There's no one to teach. What good is it to be an evangelist if you never share the good news of Jesus Christ? What good is it to be one who has the gifts of mercy when there's no one to show mercy to? What good is it to have a gift of hospitality if you never invite anyone to your home? What good is it to have uh, the gift of, uh, of praying for others if you never stop and pray for anyone else but yourself? We have to recognize that our calling is always connected with the people of God. And here's the thing, if you're withholding your gift, you're not only causing yourself not to experience the blessings of God, but you're keeping others away from that blessing as well. You see, it's our job to make known, Paul says, the word of God to each other. 
as we demonstrate in the text, it tells us the mystery of God. And we'll talk about that next week. We're going to set that whole mystery idea off till next week. But we need to f- focus in on that our gifts and our abilities, just as in the life of Paul, were to be used to grow others within the church, the building up of others in their lives with Christ. So husbands, how are you fortifying the faith of your wife? Wives, how are you fortifying the faith of your husbands? Parents, what are you doing to fortify the faith of your children, to grow them, to make the word of God fully known to them? Pastors and elders, what are we doing to make sure that we are growing a body of believers who are presented as mature, complete, as Paul says in verse 28, complete with all wisdom before Christ? What are you doing, congregant, in fortifying the faith of the people sitting around you? Paul says that this Ministry is twofold. It involves evangelizing, we're all called to it, and to edifying the believer. But bear in mind when you do this, when you dedicate your life to, to such a response, when you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to do this. If there's a sinner in my life that needs to hear the gospel, I'm going to proclaim it. If there's a saint in my life that needs to, to be encouraged and built up, I'm there, Lord. I'm going to do it. Notice what Paul says. When you pursue that kind of life, it may mean that you face suffering. You may face suffering. Verse 24, Paul says, these are my sufferings for your sake. They're in my flesh. For I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for your sake. Paul's life was marked by deep desires to follow God in humility, to be a servant. And what does he get for that? A load of suffering. And that's a real possibility for each and every one of us. Over and over again, we are told that when we tell the world about Jesus, when we share the way of salvation, not everybody's going to be happy. We recognize that the gospel has an enemy. And that that enemy now is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This suffering shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us, nor should it cause us to lose our hope. But suffering is a reminder of an important truth that Paul shares that has been the the, the source of all sorts of interpretive challenges. Notice in the text, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ. Paul, what in the world do you mean by that? Some have thought that what what is being shared is that Christ's work on the cross was somehow found to be insufficient or incomplete. But we know that that's not true because in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Colossians, we know that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And in particular, he has reconciled us, past tense, through the work on the cross. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus doesn't keep repeatedly dying for man's sins but that he died once and for all and now sits at the right hand of the Father. There is nothing incomplete in the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean? What Paul is alluding to here is that when we suffer for the gospel, that is when we face hardships and troubles because we are living faithfully for Christ, when people hurl insults at us, when we lose things for our faith, when we are persecuted for our faith, when we are ostracized for our faith, we need not lose heart or confidence. In fact, Paul says we should rejoice because we are enduring from others 
what they wish they could do to Jesus Christ. But because he isn't here, because Jesus isn't bodily here, we'll have to do. Paul reminds us as servants of Christ, listen, that we have the privilege and opportunity of taking the blows for Christ's sake. And that should cause you and I to suffer in all time, to rejoice in suffering of all types and circumstances. But why? Write these three things down very quickly. Number one, when we suffer, we are given an assurance to the fact that we are in Christ. We're given assurance. Well, how how are we given assurance? We're given assurance because Jesus said, just as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so when you suffer for Christ's sake, listen, there's a difference between suffering for Christ's sake and for suffering because you're a jerk, okay? Far too many people have come to me and, and said what I've said at times, I'm being persecuted, and I ask, well, what, what's causing it? And then I find out the person's been an absolute jerk, and I say, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with Jesus. This has to do with your personality. But if we're suffering for Christ's sake, then we can have an assurance that just as they crucified our Savior and Lord, now as we walk with him, they will crucify us. I'm sorry, they will persecute us. They may crucify us. They are in some parts of the world. Number two, it fulfills an aspect of discipleship that is lacking in our day. American evangelical Christianity denies the idea of suffering. When suffering comes to the Christian, we do everything we can in our uh, lives to get it out of our lives as soon as possible. But have you ever read the scriptures and seen that the Christian life is summed up in suffering? That God sees our suffering as a good thing? Why? Because it's an opportunity for you and I to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and follow Jesus. That's easy to do when everything's going great. But when things are difficult, are we willing to take that cross and follow Jesus, even if it means a road marked with suffering? You see, we're called to follow Christ, not just on the road that leads to heaven, but also through the valley of the shadow of death. Finally, suffering gives us opportunity to imitate Christ. To imitate Christ. We get to imitate Christ how? And how we act in our suffering. The Apostle Peter says, though Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he was beaten, he did not give blows in return. You see, suffering gives us an opportunity to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It gives us an opportunity to imitate Christ in the way he dealt with his enemies including you and I, by taking his life and letting it go for the sake of our salvation. Do you see suffering and why it should produce rejoicing? The good that it does? Do you see it as an opportunity to endure light and momentary trial so that we might inherit the inheritance that is to come? See, many of us don't seek to free the sinner or fortify the saint because we're too worried about what it's going to cost, what it will mean. 
But when we choose the Club Med ride instead of the Christ-like road, we miss out on what Paul calls the hope of glory, which is filled with riches. Far too many of us are living for the dot of this earthly life at the expense of the infinite line that symbolizes eternity. This was true for the Colossians, and it's true for us today, and that's why Paul reminds us that the gifts that God has given us is to do something for the church around us. Notice the final thing is to move people to maturity. To move people to maturity. How does Village Bible Church, how does the church at Colossae become a church that's filled with people that are committed to God's calling, who exercise their faith every day? We do what Paul did. We disciple people. We grow people. We take all of these Christians that are in this place from point A to point B to point C. Our vision statement at Village Bible Church makes this clear. We want to be a family of growing believers, not stagnant believers, not Sunday morning believers, not American believers, but growing believers who grow in the grace of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. People, as Paul said in Colossians 1.23, who are continually in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Listen, the job of the church is not to entertain you. It's not to keep you busy. It's not a goal to pack the house or to be a factory of great programs or ministries. Paul's goal for Colossians And Paul's goal for Village Bible Church is for us to be a church that moves people to great maturity in Christ Jesus. So how do we do that? Notice this movement should be instructional. Verse 25, we are to make known the word of God fully. That is, we are to know the scriptures and we are to reveal it to all. Notice at the end of the passage, three times he uses a word, everyone. We are to warn everyone, we are to teach everyone, so that we may present everyone. This is for men and women, young and old, the rich, the poor, all of us. The job of the church is to see no man or woman left behind. So what do we do? We admonish. Notice Paul says in verse 27, we warn Everyone, the word there, warn, is admonish. It carries the idea of warning or helping someone to set someone's mind in a proper order, to bring them back from their distraction. And so we need to understand that our mission here at the church is to to help people to cease to be distracted away from the things of this world and brought back to being focused on the things of God. We've got to be willing to do that, but that's not easy, is it? That means we got to admonish one another in a spirit of love. We need to be willing to receive warning and correction when we need it. Notice number two, it involves teaching. That is, it refers to the clear communication of God's word. Hopefully what I'm doing this morning, what's happening in each of the classes that are meeting today. Have you ever noticed that at Village Bible Church, no matter what we teach, whether it's parenting or money, whether it's teen issues or women issues or men issues, where it's issues addressing our elderly or to our children, that all of our teaching is to do what Paul says in verse 28, that it is Christ who we proclaim. That no matter what we're talking about, we should fundamentally ask the question, what would Jesus do? And what does Jesus demand of us? 
What does he demand of our children? What does he demand of our teenagers? What does he demand with regards to our pocketbook? What does he demand with regards to our outreach? What does he demand with regards to our fellowship and care for one another? Paul's going to address this in the weeks to come in all circumstances of life, what we are called to be, to be consistent. And when we do that, notice it won't just be instructional, it'll be impactful. As a church admonishes and teaches its people, there's a result. What's the result? The result is the great mystery. You and I will begin to experience Christ in us, the hope of glory. What that means is we will become smaller and Christ will become bigger. That our speech will change. Our, our thinking will change. Our, our view of outsiders will change. Our actions towards believers and non-believers will change. All being fine-tuned into becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We will become, as one of the church fathers said, little Christ for the world to see. That when you walk into work, someone says, there's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Notice it needs to be intentional. What's our focus? That we will present everyone mature in Christ. That word there uh, literally means fully grown. Listen, our job is not just to admonish or just to teach. But we do this to create spiritually mature Christ followers. We do this so that you may grow. That you and I may become like Christ. Listen, before you put your sheets away, i got one more point that I'm going to add for you. Our focus at Village Bible Church can't be on numeric growth. It's got to be on spiritual growth. It can't be on building buildings. It's got to be about building believers. It can't be about information. It has to be about transformation. It can't simply be about moving people just here and there, but being serious about moving people to maturity. But it can't be lazy or passive in our response to it. Notice Paul says one final thing, and we'll close. It's going to be intense. Notice Paul says, to this end... I labor. He's referring to proclaiming Christ and presenting believers as, as perfect or mature. The word labor means to, to grow weary because of hard toil. The word struggle comes from the Greek word that's translated agony. Both words are used to speak of an athlete who competes in an arena. What this means is you and I, when we're living out our calling from God, when we're exercising our faith every day, it will mean we will labor ourselves to the point of exhaustion. Paul said that he was like a drink offering being poured out to the place that all of who he was was being poured into the ministry of Christ. What that means is you and I at times are going to lay ourselves out completely spent, completely fatigued in order that we may move people to full devotion in Jesus Christ. And I am humbled that I am a part of a church that so many are willing to do this. So if you're tired, if you're wiped out as you reach others and raising up others in the name and ways of Christ Jesus, then you're in the company of the Apostle Paul. That's, that's some Hall of Fame company. Notice Paul doesn't do this in his own strength. Notice the important truth as we close this out. It is done through the energy that God gives, that he works powerfully within us. 
Paul says, strive according to God's energy, and he will powerfully energize you. You see, we've got to be willing to surrender our availability so that we may have God's ability to change the world. So let me close with this. Since Christ is in you, the hope of glory, he's going to provide everything you need, all the supernatural strength and explosive energy for you to propel people to maturity in Christ. But it's going to mean we're going to have to be committed to his calling. We're going to have to be willing to exercise our faith each and every day, both here in our church and in our schools and in our workplaces, both in our neighborhood and to the uttermost parts of the world. But we can't give up. We can't hold back. We can't grow lazy and lethargic. But we must use the pattern that Paul has given to fulfill the calling, to be the servant of Christ who now promises that we labor and lean on him, that he'll give us the strength and the victory we need each and every day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word, and I pray that it was a useful and beneficial time. Lord, I pray that each of us would take a moment and we would allow your word to challenge our hearts today and ask the question, am I living out the calling you've given me? Lord, if there's someone who doesn't know their calling uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray today they would not leave without asking an elder or, or their small group leader or, or, or someone, Lord, sitting next to them, help me to understand my calling for Christ. Lord, we want to know what it is. We want to serve you. Lord, I pray that as we leave, this, this wouldn't just go in our back pocket for, a, for another time or another moment, but these truths would impact as we walk into our workplaces tomorrow, as we walk into our schools, as we engage with neighbors and, and friends. Lord, as we fellowship with believers after the service, that we would recognize you've called us to something more than simply a hi and hello. You've called us to use our gifts in the lives of others so that they may be presented mature in Christ. Lord, I pray that this church would grab that mantle, that the elders would continue to strive in that way, that every ministry, every teacher that's teaching right now to our children and, and young people and adults, every small group that meets, every team that, that leads a ministry, would recognize that all that we do is to make greater and more mature followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't do this on our own, and so Paul reminds us that it is your strength that allows us to accomplish it. So empower your church. Empower your people so that we might be able to not only grasp enjoy even the sufferings that come along the way. Lord, I pray that you will guide us in this endeavor so that we may fulfill our calling as a church and as a people to the glory of God, announcing the preeminence of Christ to all. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place. Allow us to, to minister to one another, to fellowship, that we can share the hope of the glory of Christ that we have that's inside of each and every one of us, we pray. It's in his name. Amen.